Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Farming for Passive Income show, where we help educate the agricultural community on hands-off commercial real estate investing, growing their businesses, and wealth strategies. I'm your host, Casey Silveria, and today we are pleased to have Rob Berger on the show. Rob is the host of the Financial Freedom Show on YouTube. He is an author, a major blogger, um, an investor, and used to be a securities lawyer, so he has a wealth of knowledge. Um, Rob, welcome to the show. Casey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Rob, I was very impressed with the amount of information and your writing on various outlets on the internet when I was doing my research research on um, financial advisors, you know, fiduciaries, fees, what fees do over time when they're not compounded, um, all of those types of things. And I was just very impressed um, by your writing and your work over the years. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. So um, if you could briefly, I would love it um, if you could just give us a, a brief overview of your background and how you went from securities lawyer to financial guru. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, uh, you know, I grew up in Ohio, uh, but uh, I practiced law or did here in, in Washington, D.C. And uh, I did a number of different things, but I ended up yeah, in sort of the securities field, uh, working at the government and then back in private practice. But during that time, I started a finance blog. I, you know, I invest our money. I owned real estate that, you know, re rental properties at one time. And I just started writing about it. This was 15 years ago. And to my surprise, that actually turned into a business. And I retired from law uh, in my, I guess, late 40s. And, uh, but that, you know, that led to a podcast and a book. And then eventually I sold my original website. And then I did some work at Forbes. Uh, and kind of then retired again and then thought, well, this isn't any fun. I've got to do something. So I started the YouTube channel and um, yeah, and that brings me here to you, I guess. That's sort of the the very quick, um, I guess, story. You know, I've invested for 30 years. Uh, and like I said, I did own rental properties at one time. I don't today. I've owned, a, a, you know, some businesses, sold them, bought some, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a pretty cool journey, especially when you think about your experience from securities and then educating everyone, it seems like from A to Z on, you know, where to where to place their money in the traditional forms of investments. Yeah, it, it, you know, the, 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 on the security side, I was doing a lot of work um, in the auditing space. So because I worked for a regulator that regulated the audit, auditors of publicly traded companies. And, um, and that was pretty good experience. I mean, it wasn't so much investing per se, but you really taught me a lot about how to read financial statements and what a financial statement audit does, what it doesn't do, uh, which is certainly helpful. Although frankly, mm -hmm. for the kind of investing I do, at least most of it, uh, you don't really need any of that. <laughs> so, you know, you don't, you don't really need to know how to read a financial statement, um, I, to be a great investor in my view. So can we dive into that a little bit? Like, how do you, how do you go about picking good investments is i know it's a very complex question probably but from a, a layman's perspective right well the first thing you have to decide is whether you think you can pick individual investments let's say individual stocks and bonds or if you simply want to uh own the market right uh through like an index fund or e index etf and, and and that's certainly i think the best way to go for the vast majority of people including myself uh, is to not try to pick stocks. Now, I do own some individual stocks, but the vast majority of our portfolio is in index funds, uh, mutual funds and ETFs. 
And you can you can get a, a well-diversified portfolio. Well, you could do it in a, in a single fund if you wanted to, but certainly two or three funds is all you need. I mean, it would be perfectly reasonable to take what, what for most, including myself, would be a crazy amount of money, let's say $100 million, and invest it in three index funds. That would be a very sensible way to go. Um, of course, most of us don't have that kind of money, but you know, whatever money you do have, you don't need complexity. You don't need a lot of funds. Uh, you know, you can own basically every publicly traded stock and and tens of thousands of, of publicly traded bonds in two or three index funds. You know, mm -hmm. one for maybe U.S. stocks, one for international stocks, and then maybe a total bond fund. Uh, and you've got a great portfolio and it's well diversified. It's going to have its ups and downs. Uh, you know, in 2022, we've had a lot of downs and that's going to happen from time to time. But long term, um, I believe it'll do very well. So you you mentioned just two or three funds, and you will be okay. Do you think that there's perhaps too many complex funds out there? Absolutely. Most mutual funds are of little value to to most investors. the The thing that folks you, you need to I think really focus on to start are, are, are really two things. One are fees. So you think about all mutual funds, and this is true with ETFs as well. You have actively managed, what they call actively managed, where there's a manager actually, or a team of people trying to pick winners and, and avoid losers, which sounds sensible, right? Who wants to just throw our money at everything? That's, you know, why, why not try to pick winners and losers? Yeah. And, and, this, and the second issue is our fees. So if you pay 1% for a mutual fund, over time, that's going to drain hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, depending on what kind of numbers you're talking about from your wealth. So study after study shows us that active, ma actively managed funds over the long term underperform the indexes. Mm -hmm. And if there are a few that have to happen to outperform it after fees, the problem with that is there's no way for us to know today which of uh, actively managed funds say over the next 10, 20, 30 years are going to be the winners. There's no way to know. Yeah. Um, and so I think the vast majority of investors are just better off with low cost index funds. Okay. Yeah, that that was actually one of the the pieces that I was really digging into in how you broke down how fees impacted the long-term health of a portfolio. Even that 1% can be huge. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And what, what advisors will often do, I mean, you can find low cost advisors. They're still going to cost you and you shouldn't dismiss that cost but you can find advisors somewhere in the 25 to 50 basis point range 20 meaning 25 100 basis points is one percent right so 25 basis points would be a quarter of one percent even that fee is significant we shouldn't dismiss it but if you're going to want get help it's a lot better to pay that than one percent and the, the problem with a lot of the one percent advisors and some will charge even more by the way is they often put you into complex expensive portfolio. So they'll use a lot of actively managed funds. So you have to keep in mind that 1% that you're paying the advisor is not your only fee. They can put you in expensive mutual funds and the funds themselves can cost one or one and a half or even 2%. So that your overall wow. fee, it re really, it, it just, it's, it's life changing in a bad way, those kind of fees. And I'll tell you, I get a lot of people come to me and they say, yeah, I used an advisor and they put me into 20 or 30 or 40 different funds in a taxable oh, account. Yeah. They want they want to get out of them, but it, now they're kind of stuck because if they sell them they're going to incur a lot of taxes. 
And so mm-hmm. they find it very hard to, you know, they may want a simple portfolio, three or four, you know, index funds or whatever it might be. And it's very difficult now and costly to actually get there after an advisor, you know, has done, you know, uh, that kind of added that kind of unnecessary complexity. Now, not all advisors are that way. And that, that's why it's important if you're going to use an advisor to understand how they're going to invest your money. Some of them will use just three or four index funds. They tend to also be lower cost. Um, so that's just something to, to consider if you're going to, mm-hmm. you know, look for an advisor for help. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on the retirement funds? Say right now, I have a retirement fund for 2055 and I yep. was looking at the diversification of it and it was diversified, I don't know, across like 16 different countries, um, 10 different funds, um, and then I'm not even sure what fees were charged um, within those. What do you typically see as far as the fees in individual retirement funds like that? Yeah. So what you're describing is a target date retirement fund, you know, that mm-hmm. has the year and the name, right? It makes mm-hmm. it the point of the year is just to make it easy to pick which fund, right? Yeah. So a couple of things there. Some of them use index funds, you know, as the underlying assets that they're going to invest in when you contribute to a target date fund. And they tend to be much lower in cost. Some don't though. So like Fidelity, for example, has both a an index fund version of, of, a, of a target date fund that's lower cost, but they have an actively managed version of it that's much, much more expensive. And so okay. you really need to understand the expenses of a target date fund. They're not all created equal. You want to focus on the lower cost. The fact that there's a lot of complexity inside them, I would say is not all that... Uh, not necessarily a downside because the fund itself is managing that complexity for you. And it's inside a retirement account so that you could always change investments if you wanted to without incurring taxes. If you wanted to put it down the road into a three index funds, for example. The other thing I'd add though, is that I I think target date retirement funds are a reasonable choice when you've, you've got, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 years to go. As you near retirement, they tend to become overly conservative, in my view, um, where mm-hmm. they have they 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 dip below fifty percent in stocks, sometimes significantly, uh, and I think for most retirees, that's probably not a great asset allocation. Again, every situation is different, but it's something to keep in mind. As you near retirement, in my view, target date retirement funds become less. Uh, of a reasonable choice. Mm-hmm. So how would you transition that or propose to transition that into a more sensible solution? Well, let, I'll try to give you the short answer to that, but there's really, it really would be a longer discussion. Yeah. It's like a case right. study. Well, it, it partly depends on how much of your mm-hmm. investments you're going to spend each year. There's something called the 4% rule, which you may have heard of. It was Bill Bingen uh, wrote a paper in 1994. I had him on my show. Uh, that gave us the 4% rule. I think it's good for planning. It, it, it's not always the best for actually once you get to retirement, but I think it's a, a decent starting point as a rule of thumb. The reason I mention it is if you're going to start spending somewhere near 4% of your portfolio in the first year of retirement, and then adjust that amount for inflation going forward, that's how the 4% rule works. What Bill Bingen found is you really need somewhere between 50 and 75% in equities. And I think that rule of thumb is still true today. Uh, and there's been a lot of more research on it since 1994. So somewhere within there. Now, again, some of your listeners might need, might only need 2%. And so they have more flexibility in their asset allocation and retirement. 
Uh, others might only need 3% because they have a pension or they have social security or they have some other sort of um, uh, guaranteed income. So there's a lot of different variables. So, you know, you really need to think through that issue, but uh, it's rare that I see someone who, where it makes sense for them to have significantly less than 50% in equities, even when they start to retire, keeping in mind that even if you retire at a traditional age, say 65, you're still a long-term investor. I mean, at least if we assume, you know, you're going to live to 90 or 95 or, you know, for yeah. planning purposes, right? You're not a short-term investor. Mm-hmm. So um, you, you can run into trouble if you try to get quote unquote safe and say, put all your money in, in fixed income. That can be a very dangerous thing to do, even though it may feel like a safe thing to do. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you're more of a proponent of adjusting your split in a more sensible way rather than just a straight 60-40 that has been pretty prolific for a while. Well, again, 60-40 would be in that range of 50 to 75 that Bingen f- uh, found. I think 60-40 is a very reasonable approach once you're in retirement. Again, as you dig into the research, uh, what you'll find is that that will probably, at least based on historical data, a 60-40 portfolio, assuming low-cost index funds and no advisor fee, keep that in mind. If you're paying an advisor 1%, that affects the 4% rule. Um, At least based on historical numbers, it would support uh, the 4% rule. Um, I think what they also find, though, is, is if you can tolerate a little more risk, as you get closer to that 75% uh, number, you, you're you're more likely, no guarantees, right? But you're probably more likely to have more wealth over the course of your retirement and even at the end of your retirement, which depending on your circumstances may be important based on whatever your legacy goals are. You want to leave money to family, to charities. Um, but, but having said all of that, I think 60-40 is still a very reasonable uh, asset allocation. Again, Specifics would depend on the specific circumstances, but I think it's certainly a very reasonable starting point. Mm-hmm. So what what's your take on 40% being bond allocations, given all of the factors that are impacting bonds right now? Well, the first thing I would say is don't, don't use 2022 to decide what your bond, your fixed yeah. income strategy <laughs> should be. Uh, because if you did that, we'd all be in cash, I think, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't use uh, 2022. And keep in mind too, that 2022 is highly unusual. If you go back over a hundred years, it's rare that you see both stocks and bonds down double digits. It's happened like maybe once before. So this is really unique. Uh, it, so keep that in mind. Um, you know, again, I, what Bill Bingen used, and I just use that, I just point to him as just an example, not that we should dict- we should use his findings to dictate what we do, but I think it's reasonable. He, he kept the uh, fixed income and intermediate term bonds. I think he used treasuries, which I think is reasonable. You could also use just a, like a, a Vanguard or Fidelity total bond market fund, which would also invest in investment grade corporate bonds and maybe some asset backed bonds as well. I think that's reasonable too. Some folks like to keep some amount in cash and you can do that. You just have to be careful uh, because it can, it can depending on how much cash you, you keep can be a real drag on your portfolio over the long term. Again, in 2022, if you went to cash in January, you, you're probably feeling pretty good, <laughs> but yep. you know, this again is unusual. So um, anyway, I hope that, hope that answered your question. I kind of feel yeah. like you know, it's a long winded way to get to yeah, the finish line. Definitely. Well, it's a, these are all very nuanced they conversations. Are. 
You know, no, they absolutely are. And, and, and I think what helps is if people understand sort of the rationale behind these things, there, there's a lot to understand about the 4% rule. It seems simple and it is, but there are a lot of assumptions that go into the 4% mm-hmm. rule that folks need to understand mm-hmm. um, as they figure out what their best approach is to retirement spending. So maybe, Rob, we, maybe we should just dive into the 4% r- rule really quick and just break it down. Okay. Well, let's make sure we understand how it works. So you, you, the idea is you can spend 4% in the first year of retirement. So if you just had a million dollars, just to pick a round number, you could spend 40 grand. And mm-hmm. here's what people miss. Starting in year two, you throw out the 4%. That's it, it, 4% number only matters in figuring out your first year of retirement spending. After the first year, you throw that out. You also ignore your portfolio balance, which probably seems shocking, right? Doesn't matter if it goes up, if it goes down. Year two, you what you spend is the forty thousand from year one plus inflation, or minus deflation. Doesn't happen very often, but sometimes prices go down. You, in other words, you adjust every year after the first. You're spending by inflation, and the idea behind that is you'll be spending. You'll have sort of a constant dollar, a constant after inflation amount of money to spend. Nominally, it'll go up, assuming we have inflation, but the purchasing power effectively stays the same. Now, the really interesting thing is how how did he come up with that, right? Well, what he did was he looked at 30-year retirement periods beginning in 1926. So he said, okay, what if I retired in 1926? How much, what percentage could I spend in year one and then adjust that amount for inflation going forward such that I wouldn't run out of money? He did that for 26, 27, 28, all the way through to 1976, all right? And so, the 4% rule comes from 1966. That turned out to be the real bad year, right? And if, you're, if your listeners are as old as I am, they know why. In the inflation of the 70s and early 80s was terrible. 73, 74 was a terrible stock market. And it made the late 60s a really bad time. The reason you know, to, to retire, the reason I bring that up is in most years, you could have started out with a higher percentage. In fact, in some years, you could have started out at 8% or 9%. What Bill Bingham was trying to do was kind of get that fail-safe rule that, you know, what's the rule that never fails, at least based on historical data? And that's where the 4% comes from. By the way, other researchers have taken this, believe it or not, all the way back to 1871. And the 4% rule still stands. Now, will it stand in the future? I don't know. Maybe 2019 will turn out to have been a 3.8% year, you know, once we fast forward 30 years, uh, certainly with our current inflation, you know, one might see that as possible. But the point is 4% has stood the test of time for about 150 years. Uh, so I think it's a, a, it's a reasonably safe approach given that, you know, we can't predict the future. The other thing I would say is it did assume uh, a pretty simple asset allocation, S&P 500 and an intermediate term treasuries, right? And somewhere between 50 and 75% with stocks. If you go above that, you're running into trouble if we have a re- repeat of the Great Depression where stocks were down terribly from 29 to 31, right? If you go significantly below the 50% in stocks, then you have a hard time catching up from bad markets, particularly in inflationary environments. So that's sort of the rationale between that sweet spot um, sorry about that. Uh, more recently, he's done additional research on adding different asset classes like small cap, uh, like international stocks. 
There's been other researchers that have done that. And they found that you can probably increase the safe withdrawal rate a little bit if you have a somewhat more diversified portfolio with like, for example, with small cap or small cap value stocks. Um, you know, it, it might get it to four and a half. I think at one point he said, he, uh, Bill, Bill Bing had said maybe 4.7, which can be significant for folks. Or by the way, it may just give them some comfort if they want to stay at the 4% uh, level. Um, and beyond that, I would say that there are a lot of other withdrawal strategies. You know, you don't have to do a constant dollar adjust for inflation every year through retirement. What most retirees find is that they don't spend a constant dollar amount every year. You know, some years it's more, some years it's less. Studies show that as we age, we tend to spend less money. We might spend more on healthcare, but we're not traveling as much when we're in our 80s or 90s as mm -hmm. we did when we're 60s or 70s. You know, we might love golf seven days a week at 65. We're probably not going to love it seven days a week at 90, right? So, you know, there's, I think, a good argument to say, I think a retiree's greatest superpower is if they can stay flexible with their spending. So, uh, you know, when you look at your 4%, one of the questions I ask folks is, how much of that 4% in year one do you need just to survive? If you need every dollar just to survive, you might want to think about a part-time job, delaying retirement a year or two. Uh, on the other hand, if you say, well, no, my fixed expenses are 2.7 of that or 3% of that, and the rest of that is fun or, you know, things that I could do without if I had to. Well, now you've got some flexibility to deal with, like, for example, 2022 when inflation's at 8% 8, 8 or more and the stock market's down. Um, mm. So I've been rambling a while. I, I could go mm. on and on about withdrawal rates, but I think that yeah. gives you a sense of kind of where the 4%, how it works, where it came from, some of the assumptions, um, and some of the alternatives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's Rob, that's definitely helpful especially for me as you know, I'm 31 going on 32. So understanding the impacts of that 4% rule back in the 1970s, but then running that through even more years, even in the 19 or 1800s, you said, still, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It still kind of has a test of time. Yeah. You know, that's the thing when people say that, you know, question now if the 4% rule is still viable, of course, we don't know what the future holds, but what we're seeing now is it's, it's not like we've not seen this before. Again, if you're old enough, you remember double digit inflation. I remember getting 16% on a six month CD. <laughs> uh, so, you know, uh, it's not that 2022 isn't difficult, but, you know, the 4% rule has survived worse than what 2022 is, is, is throwing at us. Again, maybe we have bad inflation for a decade. We don't know what's going to happen, mm -hmm. um, but I'm certainly not concerned at least right now about the withdrawal strategies you know that, that we're familiar with like the four percent rule the other thing i would add for you you should love 2022 not the inflation but um, for you it's ideal to have the stock market go down you hope it stays down for a long long time because you're just investing you know uh, at l lower and lower prices mm -hmm. yeah it, it's definitely an opportunity absolutely sure. there's it's either that or real estate syndications. Well, we can talk about that too. Yeah, I, I would love to get your get your opinion on um, private equity real estate syndications and how they play into someone's personal finances from your perspective. Yeah, so I don't, and this may be a contrary view from folks you've had on the show. I'm not a big fan of them by and large. I mean, I've interviewed the CEO of Fundrise. I know uh, 
the founder of Open Door Capital, which is one of the syndications. I know the guy, the people from behind Acre Trader. You know, I've met them and talked to them, and and it, I think all of these are 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 can be reasonable investments. My my concern with them is twofold. One are the fees, uh, but the second one is actually taxes. And the issue for me is this: when you own real estate directly, it, there there are some tremendous tax. Uh, potential tax advantages, right? Obviously, you get depreciation. You can get depreciation through these syndications as well. So mm -hmm. that's that can be there as well. But you control, for example, when you're going to sell, if you sell at all. You control, if you do sell, if you're going to do a 1031 exchange into a new, a new property. Um, you can control cash flow. For example, you can decide to, to do a cash out refi at some point and get cash that's not taxed. Um, so you have all of these sort of uh, ways to manage the taxes, manage the cash flow. Of course, you know, there's more risk, there's operational risk that, I mean, there is for syndications as well, but when you're buying the the asset yourself, it falls on you. You may hire someone to help you like a management firm, but still ultimately it falls on you in a way that say it wouldn't be the case if you invest in Fundrise. And I get that. But um, I think you you do lose a lot of that flexibility when you go through a syndication, at least the ones that I'm familiar with. And um, th that sort of kept me from them. I mean, if you take like an Acre Trader or Fund uh, uh, Open Door Capital, just as two examples, they tend to sell the property, you know, five, seven, eight, nine years down the road and return the capital to investors. Well, that's going to cause you to to basically, you know, you had all these deductions leading up to that point, now you recognize the gain, you recapture the depreciation. Uh, and so th that's something I probably wouldn't do if I owned the, the asset directly. So uh, I think, you know, I think these are worth considering, but it's for those reasons I've personally stayed away from them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I understand where you're coming from. I, especially from a risk perspective and especially from the active side. I was an active investor for a few years in the single family space and yeah. actively managing those assets, even though I love real estate as an investment vehicle. I thought it was great. It was I was just not very good at it um, as far as like managing the tenants, managing the business plan, yeah. renovations, all those types of things. And then you pile on running a farm or having another job or those things like it can be overwhelming. Yeah, it can. I mean, I think if someone wants exposure to real estate, a REIT is perfectly reasonable. I, I would probably hold it in a tax advantaged account, not a taxable account for the most part, but I think it's a reasonable um, uh, option. And again, I'm not suggesting these syndications are bad investments per se, but I, I'm not sure that, um, for the reasons I mentioned, they, they just give me enough concern uh, that, that at least so far I've not not invested in them. I did enjoy buy. We, we used to invest in single family homes. We we they were we bought HUD foreclosures and did very well with them. Renovated them, rented them out for years. I eventually sold them. Uh, I had a business partner, uh, uh, and and they but they did extremely well. But as you point out, it is a lot of work. Yeah. Mm hmm. Have you ever looked into investing passively as say limited partners in the deals? Well, a lot of these syndications, you would be a limited partner, right? You're not going to be a general yeah. partner, um, but you still have the same tax issues and lack of control over 
how the properties are financed, the cash flow. I mean, I, you know, in some sense, some could say, well, that's a benefit because I don't have to do anything. It's very, you know, I could just, uh, other people do all the work. What I've not been able to come to terms with though is given that, why not just invest in a REIT? Now, what some will say is, well, the, the returns are better. I'm not convinced that that's true. I, I you know, when, when you're dealing with um, assets that are not publicly traded, you have to value them. There's a lot of, you know, issues with that. I'm just, not from the sense of any foul play, but just, you know, you're you're hiring people effectively to value them. And so when you have assets that are not publicly traded, they often look less volatile than the publicly traded assets. But I'm not convinced that they, in fact, are less volatile. It, they just appear less volatile because we can't go on Yahoo Finance and see how the price of our farm did over the last three and a half minutes, <laughs> right? With a publicly traded REIT, we can go look at ticker O, for example, realty income, and we can see, you know, how it changed over the last 60 seconds. We can't do that with, you know, the kind of farms I'm used to from Ohio. They're not, you know, they're not, yeah. they're not publicly traded like that, at least ones I'm familiar with. So they can appear less volatile. I'm not really convinced that that's true, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, f- fair concerns. I mean, it is the private space, and when you are evaluating the the asset price, a lot of those assumptions are baked in. And at the end of the day, it's, you know, hopefully the free market wins. And what I'm seeing more and more is relationships win over the cheapest price as well. Because like any business, it's win-win situations are usually beneficial. And those are always built on solid relationships. I I tell you the one that I looked the most at, and if I ever were to get involved in it, it would probably be AcreTrader. Or, or some other farmland syndication. Uh, this might not apply to your listeners if they own a farm, but I don't own a farm. And I really do like the diversification that farmland can offer. Of course, you know, there's different kinds of farmland, obviously. And, uh, you know, are you annual crops or not? You know, there, I mean, there's there's different things to consider. They have tax implications and everything else. And um, But I, I do like the diversity uh, that farmland, at least historically, seems to offer and it's not something that you can easily get in a REIT. I mean, there I think there are some, but it, it's it's not quite as easy to invest in farmland uh, that way as it would be to invest in real estate where you might find a CVS or a Walgreens, which is very easy to invest in via a REIT. Yeah, just a farm around the corner. Just go invest a few shekels. <laughs> in. Yeah. Shekels, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, Rob, thank you so much for your perspectives today. Um, I've learned a lot and I would love your perspective on a few action steps um, we can take as far as getting our personal finances in order, you know, what, what are a couple of things we should be looking out for um, going forward as far as like retirements or just making sure our wealth is sitting in a good place from your perspective? Yeah. My perspective would be come up with a, a simple investment plan. It can be, you know, one thing that we, I talk about is what's called the three fund portfolio. U.S. stocks, international stocks, bonds, but come up with a plan, how much you're going to put in each one or stocks versus bonds. And then one, stick to that plan. Doesn't matter what happens. Don't change it as markets go up or down. And that can be hard to do, but uh, I've just found that that kind of market timing doesn't work and keep consistently adding to those investments, whether it's through a 401k, an IRA, if if you're a business owner, you you might have a SEP IRA or solo 401k um, uh, and keep and keep putting that money away for retirement. And particularly if you're still accumulating, 
welcome the bear markets because they're your best friend. You're, you're getting more and more shares for every dollar you put in that account. It could be scary to see all to see the total value of your portfolio go down. But if you're still accumulating, um, a bear market is your friend. It's the best thing that can happen to your the portfolio, bear. in my view. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Hug the bear. Yeah. Thank Rob. Thank you so much for those action points. Um, is there what what are some good ways listeners can get a hold of you? Probably the best way is just to go to the YouTube channel. If you just go to YouTube and search Rob Berger, you'll find me. Um, I do send out a newsletter every Sunday. It's free um, and it's focused on investing in retirement. I have a link to the sign up form below every video on YouTube, or you can go, just go to robberger.com. Awesome. Well, we will definitely put those in the show notes. And Rob, thank you again for coming on. Thanks, Casey. All right. Listeners, till next time. Have a good day. See ya.